What do you consider to be the most important building in the history of the world? If you're a patriot, you might say it's the United States Capitol, perhaps the White House. If you're a history buff, you might look to the Roman Colosseum or to the Pantheon. If you like great big old tombs, you might like the giant pyramid of Giza or the Taj Mahal. If you like symbolic structures, you might vote for the Statue of Liberty or perhaps the Eiffel Tower in Paris. Well, I suggest to you this morning that the most important building in the history of the world, the most important structure in the history of the world is the one we will study today starting in Exodus 25, and it is the tabernacle of God. Turn to Exodus 25 in your Bibles. We will start there today. While two chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, are devoted specifically to creation, 50 chapters of the Bible are used to explain the tabernacle, its construction, its pattern, and its service to us. It is the only building ever constructed with the specific purpose of communicating how sinful people can have a relationship with a holy God. It lays out for us perhaps the most complete picture of God's plan of salvation through Jesus Christ in the entire Old Testament. Today we are in Exodus, the second book of the Bible. We have to get to Exodus in the second book, we have to look back to Genesis and look at the first two chapters and see God's creation. We see the fall of man that happens in Genesis chapter 3. God created the world and then man rebelled against God and fell. We see man rebelled even further and God judged the world through a flood but preserved Noah and his family through that flood. And by this time, you get the idea that mankind is pretty helpless. But yet, in Genesis chapter 12, God reaches out. He reaches out through a man by the name of Abraham. And then through Abraham's sons, Isaac and Jacob. And God makes promises to Abraham and his descendants. He says, I will give you a land, a promised land. I will give you many descendants, like the sand of the seashore. And the most important promise that he gives to Abraham is he promises Abraham that he will bless him. And through all the families, and through Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Well, these descendants of Abraham grow to a family of 70 people. And a famine strikes the land. God preserves them by taking them to Egypt. God provides for them in Egypt. God grows them into a great nation of people in Egypt. But they are taken into slavery while they are there. They spend 400 years there. And that brings us to the book of Exodus. And Moses is called from a burning bush by God to return to his people. This Moses, who had been a prince of Egypt but who because he murdered an Egyptian who was beating a Hebrew slave was forced into exile. And God had worked through Moses to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. By great power and by great miracles, he had delivered them. Through the Passover 
At the Passover, God had had the Israelites sacrifice a lamb and then smear the blood on the doorposts of their residence so that the angel of death would pass over and preserve the firstborn of the families of Israel. God delivered them through the waters of the Red Sea, parting the sea so that the Israelites could come through. But that the Egyptian army and Pharaoh would be drowned and defeated. God had brought them to Mount Sinai, had given them His law as a reflection of His character. As God's representatives, He had told Israel how they are to conduct themselves, how they are to relate before God, and how they are to conduct themselves and relate to other people. And in doing so, they would represent God before all the nations of the earth. But as we know, as history tells us, they failed to do that. That brings us to Exodus chapter 25. I have four points in my message today. Point number one is the pattern for God's dwelling place in the wilderness. Point number two is holiness and love displayed in his dwelling place. Point number three, God's dwelling place is a shadow of a greater reality. And point number four, the person in whom God was pleased to dwell. Turn to Exodus 25 and verse 1. Here we have Moses going up on Mount Sinai where the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain. Moses enters the cloud where he will be for the next 40 days and nights. And what does God reveal to him there? Point number one, the pattern for God's dwelling place in the wilderness. Chapter 25, verse 1, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen, goat's hairs, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastplate. Then verse 8. And let them make for me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Why is God making this tabernacle? Really not a building at all. Rather, the tabernacle, the word tabernacle means tent. And it is a portable tent. It will move with them. And God is making this so that He may dwell in their midst. He is going to dwell with a sinful people. This is an expression of His love. These are His chosen people. He is a personal God. He wants to dwell among them, among His special chosen nation. Now, before this, God had not established a fixed place 
to come to God or a location to offer sacrifices. Certainly Abel and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had all made sacrifices to God. But God did not designate a special place for that to happen, and He did not dwell in any of those places in a special way. For sure, the domain of God is the whole earth, and He is present everywhere. But never before had He designated a specific sacred place where He intended to dwell in the midst of His people, where He will meet with them and where they will worship Him with offerings and sacrifices. This place is a sign to them that He is not a temporary visitor, but rather He is making His home with them, that He will never leave them, that He is faithful, that He is their God. It is God putting enduring action behind the words that He spoke to them even before Moses went before Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 7. God said to to Moses, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So chapters 25 to 31 describe the furnishings as well as the defining of those who would serve in the tabernacle, that is, the priests, and also describes the offerings and sacrifices that would be offered in it. You can follow along with the heading of your Bibles as we just walk through the chapter and review the various sections. In chapter 25, after this initial discussion we just read, he talks about the Ark of the Covenant. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. Talks about the table for bread that will be in this tabernacle talks about the golden lampstand. In chapter 26, he, talks how to, he describes how to build the tabernacle. In chapter 27, he describes the bronze altar that is in the court of the tabernacle. In chapters 28 and 29, he talks about the priests, the garments they should wear, the offerings that they should make. In chapters 30 and 31, you find the altar of incense described you find the bronze basin. The workmen gifted by God are talked about. And finally, the Sabbath is discussed. And this whole section ends with these words in verse 18 of chapter 31. And he, God, gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. The two tablets containing the testimony, the Ten Commandments of the Lord. Now these chapters, as well as the rest of the book of Leviticus that follows, lays out the tabernacle, its pattern, its construction, the services and the offerings that were to go on there. Now if you're like me, and you started reading through the Bible in a year, like is often our plan, and I'll pick up my Bible, and I'll start in Genesis, and the story moves right along through Genesis, and I don't have any problem, keep going. And I read through the first half of the, uh, of the book of Exodus, and, and we have all the fantastic stories that happen in Exodus. And then I get to chapter 25, and it starts talking about the tabernacle, and the priests, 
and all these tiny little details about how you make this and that and the sacrifices and and I kind of start to bog down. I just talked to somebody this week. They were so thankful. They were going to make it through Leviticus and get to Numbers and it'll get a little bit easier to read every day. A lot of times I haven't gotten past the book of Leviticus. I'm sure you haven't either. So what are we to make of these chapters? These, these chapters clear up to Leviticus 27. Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. Why does God spend so much time and get into such detail with these things that to our modern way of thinking don't seem all that important? Well, let's start by getting down a general idea of what we're talking about here. This tabernacle, this, this tent complex, this tabernacle complex had three main parts. The, the outer courtyard for the tabernacle was 150 feet long and 75 feet wide. Now, to give you an idea of about how much area that covers, uh, that's about 11,000 square feet. Our church building is twice that size. It's 22,000 square feet. So this open-air courtyard is about half of the building. If you take from that wall to that wall and from this wall clear through to the front entrance, that's about how much area the outer courtyard took up. It's not that big. It's a relatively small area. It was, like I said, an open-air courtyard. It had a seven-and-a-half-foot wall all the way around it. Posts of wood all the way around with 60 white linen curtains that were seven-and-a-half feet tall all the way around. It had only one way in. It had a gate on the east end, 30 feet wide that was made of purple and blue and scarlet yarns. A beautiful gate. Would have been very stunning. Upon entering the east end of the outer courtyard of this tabernacle complex, the first thing you would see, the largest item that a worshiper would find inside this tabernacle, this tent area, would be the bronze altar of burnt offerings for the sacrifice of animals designed to meet and satisfy the demands of a holy God. This bronze altar was big, seven and a half feet wide, another foot and a half beyond my arms, and seven and a half feet long. So a large square structure, four and a half feet tall, about this tall. Its position just inside the gate made it easily accessible. It also made it unavoidable and unmistakable. The sacrifices here were offered daily, both morning and evening. The animal would be burnt on the top of this altar and its blood thrown on the side of it. Can you imagine the smell? What do you think it looked like? You couldn't avoid it. You couldn't have missed it. Also in the eastern half of the outer courtyard was a bronze basin, a, a, a large bowl made of bronze for the ritual washings and cleansing of the priests. The main structure inside of this, this, this courtyard was the tabernacle or the tent. It was situated in the western half of the courtyard. It was 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, and 15 feet tall. About the size of this stage, about this much area. Of course, it was rectangular, though, not this kind of odd shape. But about this size. And it was about as tall as from the tiles on the ceiling to the floor. 
There were two rooms in this tent. The first room is called the holy place. And whereas the worshipers could enter the outer courtyard, only the priests could enter the holy place. A very limited number of people would ever enter the holy place. Inside the holy place, there were three pieces of furniture. The table for the bread, the lampstand that we know as a menorah, the golden lampstand, and the altar of incense. The priests could only enter, Aaron and his sons. And they entered this holy place daily so that they could attend to the incense and the oil and the lamps. And once a week, they would eat the bread and change out the bread on the Sabbath day. That brings us to the innermost room of the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. So they would go through the holy place and to the Holy of Holies. But only one person could enter the Holy of Holies and only one day of year could they enter it. Inside of this holy, holy of Holies, there is only one piece of furniture. That piece of furniture is the most important piece of furniture in the history of the world, in the most important structure in the history of the world. It is the Ark of the Covenant. What is an ark? The ark is a chest or a box. That's all it is. It's inside the Holy of Holies. Look at Exodus chapter 25, verse 10. Let's read the description of it. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. This box, this chest is 45 inches long, 27 inches tall, and 27 inches wide. It's a rectangular box. Again, it's not very big. Verse 11. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside. You shall overlay it and you shall make it, make on it a molding of gold around it. So it's a beautiful box. It's pure gold. And this important piece of furniture has a very important lid. Go down to verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. So it fits perfectly on top of the ark. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, two angels. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony. God is going to meet with His people in this place where He will dwell above the mercy seat 
between the cherubim. This is his throne. This is where he will meet with his people. Just like a king meets with those who would come to him in his throne room, before his throne. Here God will meet with his people. This is the basic structure of the tabernacle. Brings us to point number two. Holiness and love is displayed in this dwelling place. Let's go back to verse 8 of chapter 25. Notice this building is called a sanctuary. That means it is a set-apart place. It is a holy place. God's purity and holiness are represented here. This place is special like God is special. The fact is that this sanctuary reflects a heavenly reality. It is to made, as, as such, it is to be made exactly as God prescribes for it. As a dwelling place for God, it reflects God. Now, the Israelites have been in the wilderness for months now, in the desert, in the scrubland. Okay? Think like western Nebraska, eastern Wyoming, eastern Colorado. You know, you've seen a little bit of it, you've seen a lot of it, right? You just drive and drive and drive, and it goes on and on and on. Think of what this structure would have looked like in the middle of the desert now. White walls all the way around it. A tent in the middle of it. Poles, wooden poles with silver trim on the poles. It would have been a beautiful sight. It would have been out of the ordinary. It was special in this place. It was meant to be strikingly beautiful and glorious. And the entrance of blue, purple, and red yarns and the furniture of bronze and pure gold would have been marvelous to behold. The beauty of this place is made to reflect the beauty of God. Beautiful things reflect God, don't they? We think of God when we see beautiful things. Psalm 19, verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. When I see the mountains and I see the beautiful snow-capped peaks, I'm reminded of God. Some people, when they see the ocean waves rolling in, they're reminded of God. Some, when they see something like the Grand Canyon, they're reminded by the beauty of it, of God's beauty and how great He is. And notice the progression as you would have come into the temple. Okay? First, you would have seen the wooden poles with the silver trim. And then as you would have come in the entrance to the outer courtyard, you would have seen the bronze altar and the bronze basin. And then what happens to the furniture items once you come inside the holy place and the holy of holies? The altar of incense is made of pure gold. The lampstand is hammered out of a single piece of pure gold. The table of the presence 
is wood overlaid with pure gold. You notice how things get more precious and more valuable as you make your way deeper into the tabernacle, through the courtyard, the Holy of Holies. God's presence in the tabernacle is even seen in the materials that are used. The priest's clothes, we are told they must be beautiful and glorious as well. His hands and his feet must be clean. That's why we have so much cleansing going on, so many washings going on, and why they come to this bronze basin and wash their hands and their feet so often. They must be clean before a holy God. The progression is also seen in the people that can enter. Whereas the worshipers can enter the outer courtyard, only the priests can enter the holy place, and only the high priest, Aaron, can enter the holy of holies. You see what God is doing? As you get closer and closer to the presence of God, you must be more special. You must be more precious. You must be more holy. His holiness is being portrayed in this tabernacle in this structure. God is teaching the people that there must be separation between a holy God and a sinful people. Yet God's holiness can never be properly understood apart from God's love. The tabernacle points to His desire to live amongst His chosen people. Amongst the people He has chosen to love. This tabernacle is God's way of expressing His love in combination with His holiness. The fact that He wants to dwell with His people is a statement of His love. While His justice requires sacrifices, in love and mercy, God accepts those sacrifices, doesn't He? Think about this. What was going on in chapters 25 to 31 down below the mountain where Moses was with God? What was happening back in the camp? Take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32. While God is preparing Moses to build a tent so that he can dwell with his people, those people are assembling their own God. Chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt... We do not know where it has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, 
These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They had quite the party going, didn't they? Verse 7. The Lord knows what's going on. Verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down. For your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. While God is planning to reach down to dwell with them, to love them by His presence even with them, He is doing so while they are committing what has got to be spiritual, insane acts. How crazy are these people? How sinful can they be? God had just delivered them from slavery. He had preserved them through the wilderness. He had given them His law. They had agreed to follow Him. Well, it didn't last very long, did it? But yet God is still there. In light of this idolatry and this rebellion, what do you do with chapters 25 to 31 in the building and the construction and the pattern of this tabernacle? Well, God is making a way for sinful people to dwell with Him. He is designing and building a place where He can be in the midst of His people. I would submit to you chapters 25 to 31 are sentences of grace. They are sentences of His love, of His mercy towards them. While they are rebelling, He is pursuing. While they are running away from Him, He is coming to them. This tabernacle is a symbol of mercy and grace. God in His grace and His love for His people in the face of all their grumbling and complaining. And now their idolatrous worship in direct violation and rejection of the Ten Commandments that He just delivered to them is still going to dwell with them. That brings us to point number three. God's dwelling place is a shadow of a greater reality. Well, how are we understand, how are we to read and profit from these chapters well, some, when they come to this section of Scripture, they see a little too much detail. They see significance in things where, at least according to the Scriptures, none exist. Let me give you some examples. 
Some in the church over the centuries have seen, for instance, that the Ark of the Covenant represents the church. And the four rings that were attached to the Ark of the Covenant used to carry it on poles are the four Gospels. And the two cherubim on top of the Ark represent the Old and the New Testaments. And the colors of the yarns that were used, the red and the blue and the purple, represent God's royalty or represent the blood of Christ or represent... The only problem is, as you come to the Scriptures and look for any kind of clue that that kind of detail is actually what those things mean, you don't really find it. But what you do find is you find the New Testament talking about these pictures that God gives us in the Old Testament and talking about them quite explicitly. We have an example right here. Look back at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 25 again. These are called types. They are things that God causes to happen, events and symbols that are used to point to a greater reality about God. There are many of them in the New Testament, but they should be governed by the fact that the New Testament talks about them and gives us guidance in understanding them. So here we are in Exodus 25, verse 8, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. This pattern is what God is talking about in Hebrews chapter 8 that we read for our scripture reading this morning. In our scripture reading, we saw God tell us in the book of Hebrews chapter 8 that the priest who served in the tent and even the tent itself represents a greater and ultimate reality. Hebrews 8 verse 5, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. In effect, God is saying there is an ultimate climactic heavenly reality being pictured in this tent in the wilderness. These things are part of the plan and purpose of God in salvation. And this pattern, this tent was built. It is a shadow of the wild, in the wilderness of the heavenly reality that exists. It is not the real thing, but it is a shadow of the real thing. It's not the real thing, but it will point you to the real thing, to the reality behind it. The fact this tabernacle is a shadow of the ultimate reality is why the detail of it is so important. The detail and craftsmanship would imitate God's own detail and craftsmanship in creation. God is a precise, careful, and intentional God. So He was in design and detail of the tabernacle. So we have a lot of things here. We have the holiness of God. We have the desire of God to dwell with His people. We have the sin of the Israelites with the golden calf. We have the redemption from Egypt. We have the giving of God's law. Well, how does it all come together? How do we see all of this in its true reality? What is the tabernacle saying to us? Well, that's point number four. The person in whom God was pleased to dwell. What is the tabernacle foreshadowing? 
let's return to the central room, the Holy of Holies, and to that central piece of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top of it. Inside the Ark is the Ten Commandments, the testimony. The Ten Commandments are written on stone tablets by the finger of God. But of course, this was the law that exposed Israel's sinfulness. If God were to interact with His people based only on His law, they would be condemned and consumed in His judgment instantly. That is why God prescribed to go between His presence on the throne, above the cherubim, His throne where He will meet with His people, and the Ten Commandments that represent the sinfulness of Israel as they have broken them, God had prescribed something to go between what was in the ark and His presence on top. That was the mercy seat. Between God's presence and God's law was the mercy seat, or it's often called an atonement cover. When we call this a mercy seat, we're not talking about a chair, but rather a location. There is no chair in the Holy of Holies, but it is like a seat of power. It is a place of power. This mercy seat or atonement cover symbolizes the place or the source from which God shows mercy to sinners. But that mercy seat was not sufficient by itself. It needed something else. Do you remember? What does the priest put on the mercy seat? He sprinkles the blood of the offering of the sacrificial animals. The blood from the offering is sprinkled on the mercy seat. See, into the Holy of Holies to stand before the ark next to the mercy seat, only one person could enter, and he could enter only one time a year. That person is the high priest of Israel. In Exodus and Leviticus, that is Aaron, Moses' older brother. He could only enter the room on the Day of Atonement that's described in Leviticus 16. He entered to make atonement for the sins of the entire nation, for all of God's people. He did this by sprinkling the blood of an animal sacrifice on the mercy seat. In this way, when God came down to meet with His people, God would not see, first of all, the law that the Israelites had broken, but rather He would see the saving blood of a sacrifice, of an atoning sacrifice on the mercy seat. You see, we need sacrifices for our sins. And God is picturing that here. We need substitutes for our sin. The animals are the substitutes for our sin. We are completely dependent upon God in this. The animal sacrifices in the tabernacle are a shadow of the real atonement that would come. The truth about sin and evil is displayed in God's judgment and the mercy and grace of God are falling on the offerings of that substitute. They are pointing to the substitute, the ultimate substitute, that is Jesus Christ. 
You see, God took on flesh and lived among us and bore the rejection of His people. He bore the crucifixion as a penalty He did not deserve to pay, but that every one of us deserved. In Hebrews 8, we read that God tells us the true tabernacle is set up by the Lord in heaven and not by man on earth. The priests in Hebrew 8 served in a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of the one in heaven. This tabernacle in the wilderness is pointing beyond itself to the true tent in Revelation 4 and 5. And what do you find when you go to Revelation chapter 4 and 5? You find lamps burning and blazing and lighting up the throne room of God, and you find incense bringing a sweet aroma to God. Just like you have a lampstand with light and an altar of incense in the tabernacle in the wilderness. And all of this was for the benefit of God's people. The holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, the shedding of blood in an offering. The gospel is depicted here in this tabernacle and it is all pointing to Christ. The high priest pointed to Christ. The sacrifices point to Christ. The veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies through which the high priest could only enter once a year. Do you remember what happens to the veil in the temple in Jerusalem at the moment that Jesus dies on the cross? Matthew chapter 27, it is ripped from top to bottom. This is a six-inch piece of curtain that rips from top to bottom, symbolizing that through Christ we are now entering the true holy of holies into God's presence through His sacrifice. What does the first chapter of the Gospel of John tell us about Jesus? John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything that was made. You see, Jesus is the eternal God. Jesus created all things. And in verse 14 of chapter 1, just a few verses later, we read, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But literally, the word translated dwelt is the word tabernacle. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus is the tabernacle. When the Son of God came to earth as a baby in a manger, He tabernacled among us. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10 in your Bibles. We're going to finish in Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. Jesus is the reality behind and beyond the shadow of the tabernacle. He is the reality 
beyond the high priestly service. He's the reality behind the sacrifices associated with it. It is Jesus who opens up for us the great salvation that is foreshadowed by the tabernacle in the wilderness. It is Jesus who is the light. It is Jesus who is the true bread. It is Jesus that allows sinners like you and like me to approach the throne room of God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Chapter 10, verse 1. Read this passage with me now in light of what we've just learned about the tabernacle. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Those Old Testament sacrifices didn't take away sins, but rather they pointed to the one whose sacrifice would take away sin. Verse 11, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Remember I said there's no chair in the Holy of Holies? That's because the Old Testament priest's work was never done. But Jesus goes into the throne room of God and He sits down. His work is done once for all. Verse 13. Waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sacrificed. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. There is no longer any offering for sin. Guess what that means in our little building right here? There's no altar up here. There is no altar here. Why? Because where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Jesus made the one-time offering. We don't need altars anymore. As a matter of fact, if you go into a church and you find an altar, there ought to be red flags going up in your mind. Why do they need an altar? The sacrifice has been made once for all by our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... It's no longer the high priest that can enter the holy place, the holy of holies. It's no longer just the priest of the Old Testament that gets to enter the holy place. 
we can enter into the true holy places in God's throne room in heaven through the blood of Jesus. That's the access we have in Him. Verse 21, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, through the veil, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. How do we know He's faithful? He dwells with us. He dwells in our midst. We are in Christ. Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ who dwells in me. Jesus is the tabernacle. And He dwells with me. It's amazing. It's incredible. This is how we have access to God. This is how a holy God can dwell with a sinful people. Not through a physical tabernacle. Not a sanctuary. Not through a mercy seat. Not through an altar. Not through our emotional feelings and how we might think about God. But rather, through the blood of Jesus. The way to God is through Christ. On the cross, giving Himself for us so we as sinners can dwell with a holy God. This God asks you today to come and dwell with Him. He makes a way for us to do that in His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. O oh, great Heavenly Father, we are staggered by Your grace. We are staggered by Your mercy. We are staggered, Father, by the details of the pictures You draw for us and the depth of the drama of redemption that You have laid out for us so that we might see as we read passages in Exodus and Leviticus that You are a holy God that every sentence speaks of Your holiness and speaks of Your love as well as You reach out to dwell with us. I pray this morning, Father, You will be honored and glorified as we believe in You as a result of what You have done in our hearts through the work of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Please, Lord, this morning, give us the gift of repentance and faith as we pray in Jesus' name, amen.